Um, as we start, just want to remind us that the reason we do this, this is for 2,000 years, has been referred to as the Lord's Day by the first disciples. It was that ginormous shift in the Jewish calendar to move the most important day from Saturday to Sunday. And the reason they did that was because Jesus rose from the dead. And so the first century believers created a liturgy for their own lives. They said, from this point on, we're going to mark the rest of our week by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so 2,000 years later, we continue to practice that same thing. It's not just a it's not just a tone of nostalgia, it's actually formative, amen? We are starting our weeks together saying, because Jesus rose from the dead, that's gonna shape everything from Monday through Saturday, and it's my great joy to be a part of that with you. Some of the ways that we do that on the Lord's Day is through singing, through worship uh, and song. Another way is through the giving of tithes and offerings, if this is part of your church. There's QR codes around the building if you're at home, uh, you can go to realitysb.com. This is a way that we give unto the Lord uh, as a part of a community together. And uh, we also get into the word of God. We listen to what the Spirit is saying to the church. And before we do that, I want to remind you if you're visiting or even if you this isn't your first time, but you've been going for a few weeks, a month or two, two years, whatever it is, but you're, you're just starting to say, gosh, I want to... I wanna ask some questions, I wanna meet someone. We have a connect table right outside. There will be someone standing out there after the gathering. Uh, you're more than welcome to come chat with us, ask us anything, just say hello if you want to. Uh, but without further ado, we're gonna get into the Gospel of Mark. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter five. And we're gonna be in verse 21 through 34. This is the story of the woman with the issue of blood. And I'm going to read for us verse 21 all the way through 26, and we'll just pick it up from there. Mark chapter 5, verse 21 through 34. Whether you're reading in physical Bibles or the Bible app on your phone or computer, whatever it is, let's read along as Mark tells us again about Jesus, who's, who's our king. And the story of someone encountering the great king. It says in verse 21, when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with them. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about Jesus. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. I want to stop right there before we get too deep into this passage. This is the word of the Lord. And it starts off with a different story. We're going to go into the story that's kind of in the middle of this, this section of scripture. It's kind of a sandwich of stories. It starts off with a story about Jairus, and then it quickly detours to the story of a woman in a crowd. Now we're going to get back to Jairus later, probably next week, 
when he gets back to Jairus himself. But what I want you to see right off the bat, just as a, a small introduction, is that Jesus was on his way to Jairus, powerful, influential male in a first century patriarchal society. And he detours like that to an outcast woman showing us that he loves everybody. He loves both the woman, he loves Jairus too. We're gonna see next week, he's gonna heal his daughter. Spoiler alert. But right now, what I want you to see before we get into the rest of this text, Jesus stops for the marginalized. He makes space for the people that nobody else makes space for. He sees you even if nobody else sees you. I love this about Jesus. And we're going to continue that first section next week. We'll get to J. Iris. It's going to be an that's going to be an incredible story. But right now, let's move ahead as Jesus himself detours and picks up the story with the woman. I want to read the section again where we see that this woman has nowhere else to turn. Maybe you feel like this sometimes yourself. It says, a great crowd followed Jesus and thronged about him. Look at verse 25. There was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and this is a giant run-on sentence in the original, uh, original language, who had suffered much under many physicians, had spent all that she had, and was no better, but was rather growing worse. The gospel writer Mark is trying to paint this despairing picture of this woman. Now what you're probably gonna find from the last passage that we were in last week, from this one, from the next one with J. Iris's daughter, is that they're all telling a similar tale. These are people in Jesus' pathway who are struggling with some kind of suffering. They're struggling with some mode of despair. And yet all of them have just a slightly different flavor to their despair. I want to point out some things with this woman. The first is physical suffering. She had a condition for over a decade that nobody was able to fix. She was physically suffering. I think we should note that Mark starts to pick on the doctors of his day. He said, none of the doctors, she went to a lot of doctors, none of them could help her. She had suffered under the care of many physicians. She spent all she had. She wasn't getting better. Rather, she was growing worse. Mark's little jab to the physicians of his day. I think this is interesting because Luke tells the same story, and he leaves out that jab on other doctors. Luke being a doctor himself. But we see physical suffering. She's suffering. But it's not just physical suffering. We see some financial suffering, too. Notice that it says that she had suffered under these physicians and had spent everything she had. She was no better, but rather growing worse. So now she's physically suffering, now she's lost everything she had, and she's still not better for it. And lastly, what I think makes her suffering a little bit different than the story of Legion we saw before, different than the 12-year-old girl that we're going to see next week, is a sense of communal suffering. That she's suffering from shame. See, the Old Testament teaches that with this particular condition, Leviticus teaches, 
you had to go through a certain process before you were let back into society, before you were let back into the religious community. She was what we would call ceremonially unclean. And because this was a condition that wouldn't just go away, you couldn't just clean it, you couldn't fix it, you couldn't take it away. She had been suffering this for 12 years. She was perpetually unclean. Now this might not be a big deal to you, but in the first century, with a Jewish community that was highly collective, this was everything for her. This was her family. These were her friends, it was her support system. She was completely pushed away, stigmatized until that condition was healed. So a little different than Legion that we saw last week who was not in his right mind, still suffering but not in his right mind. This woman was suffering in her right mind. And not only did she suffer physically and financially, but there was a sense of her community being stripped from her and her experiencing a wall of shame. Now I want you to imagine, even as Mark highlights the length of this suffering, she says, this has been going on for 12 years. And now, <laughs> and now you see a little picture of what Mark is trying to explain or give us a picture of with this woman. This isn't just a, this isn't something to put a Band-Aid on. This isn't a sore in the flesh. This isn't something inconvenient. This is despair that won't go away for 12 years. So not only is this suffering, but it, there's a sense of travail to it. And I wonder if that's why Mark, in verse 29, when he describes the disease, he would use a Greek word called mastix. That's the same word that gets translated as scourge. When it says that Jesus was scourged, it's the same word. Mark is describing her suffering as a beatdown that's lasting a decade. Maybe you, maybe you felt this way at some points in your life. Maybe you feel this way now. It's not that you've just hit walls in your life. It's not just that there have been some inconvenient events that have transpired in the last year. You feel beat down, and no matter how hard you try to get up, you feel like your feet are knocked out from under you, and you would best describe yourself not just as suffering, but as tired, lacking energy, maybe even cynical at this point. You're not just encountering hardship, you are completely depleted. And if that's you, you're in the same position, maybe in your own way, as this woman who has nowhere else to turn. Maybe you feel sometimes like you have nowhere else to turn. And if that's you, if that was you, if that's gonna be you tomorrow, if you're fine today, but you find yourself in this position a week from now, a year from now, the solution for all of us is quite simple. I want you to get in the presence of the healer. Look at this next line. It's like, it, it's like it, the, the text just moves on a hinge by verse 27. It says, she had heard the reports about Jesus. Everything changes in that line. She had heard the reports about Jesus. Now you have to keep in mind that Jesus' earthly ministry, everything he did was in a very short little space of geography. 
He did all of his ministry by the Sea of Galilee. Now you might hear sea and think ocean. It wasn't an ocean, it was more like a lake. Think of Lake Kachuma. The Sea of Galilee looked a little bit like Lake Kachuma. You could see the other end from the, from the other shore. And he did most of his work on the western upper side of Galilee, about a three to five mile walk. That was it, Jesus. Everything that he did to change the world, right there, just on the northern shore between Capernaum and Bethsaida. He would walk from town to town, he would preach, he would heal people, he would cast out demons. And then he hops on a boat, according to the story, and he goes to Gerasenes, that's on the eastern side. Hops on a boat, goes to the other side of the lake, and it says that this woman had heard reports about Jesus. This guy was so bad that news about his badness made its way all the way around the lake so that when she heard that, she, that Jesus showed up in her living room, so to speak, in her neighborhood, she was like, I gotta find this guy. Says she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garment, I will be made well. And immediately, one of Mark's favorite words, he uses it like 52 times in this book, Immediately, the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. I think it's uh, significant that it says she touched his garments, reached out and grabbed a piece of his clothing. Now, Matthew and Luke are a little bit more specific with this passage. It says that she actually reached out and grabbed the fringe of his clothing. This might seem like a small word to pass over for you, but I think it's highly significant. And when it says that she grabbed the fringe of his clothing, it's referring to a very unique part of a Jewish person's wardrobe. I actually brought a piece of that wardrobe with me today. This is a prayer shawl. This is the one that Jesus actually used during his earthly ministry. Just kidding, I got it on Amazon. And I want, this is gonna look silly, but I want you to see this because the impl implications for you are tremendous. This is typical wardrobe of a rabbi or a practicing Orthodox Jew. It's called a prayer shawl. And what you see at the end on the edges is the hem or the kanaf in Hebrew, often called the wings of the shawl. And on that hem are what you have, these little knotted tassels. This is the fringe. This is what the woman grabbed. Now, it says in the Bible, in Numbers chapter 15, the reason for this, you're gonna see uh, at the end of this, I know some of you are far off, some of you are watching from a little laptop, but you're gonna see there's five knots at the end of this. It's been braided into five knots with a blue cord going through that. Now, I want you to remember that because I'm gonna read to you the command where this comes from in Numbers chapter 15, where it says, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the kanaf of their garments throughout their generations, and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. And it shall be a tassel, here's what these tassels are for, it shall be a tassel for you to look at and to remember all the commandments of the Lord and to do them not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes which you are inclined to do. So this was a part of the Jewish person's persona and identity, and it was wrapped up in the word of God. 
The five knots symbolize the first five books of what we would call the Hebrew Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and it was typical fashion for a Jewish male to hold them in their hands and to feel the symbolism of God's word because that was at the core of their identity. Jesus had these. He was a practicing Jew. He was a rabbi. Mark chapter 6 refers to the tassels of his garments. And in this passage, we're told that the woman didn't just grab him by the ankles, didn't just like knock him to the ground, didn't grab, you know, his shoulder, grabbed the tassels, grabbed the fringe of his garment. Why? It's because by the time we get to this woman in Mark chapter 5, this represented something pretty significant about the person wearing it. This represented their identity. This represented who they were at the core of them. That little tassel at the end of the hem of their robe, the wings of the prayer shawl that would have kind of spilled through their outer garments represented them at the core of who they were. I wanna give you an example of this so you know I'm not making this up. First Samuel chapter 24. A young man by the name of David is running for his life running from King Saul, who's a bitter, jealous old man. But he's still anointed king, and we find both of them in a cave. Saul doesn't know that David is in the cave. David knows that Saul is sleeping in the cave, and his henchmen tell David, this is your chance to kill that old man and to take his throne. David says, no, I'm gonna do this instead. And we see, and I'm gonna read verse four for you. It says, David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterwards, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Does that strike you as funny? Why would David take this so deeply? Why was he so emotionally distraught? You might be saying, well, he just cut off a piece of uh, Saul's whatever, his Dolce Gabbana belt or whatnot. Like, it's, it's no big deal. He could get another one. Not so. To cut off the hem of Saul's garment, which represented his identity, was to personally assault the anointed nature of God's king. This was a personal affront. It was like knocking somebody's hat off as you're talking to him, slapping him in the face. That's why in verse 6, as David's heart is cut to the quick, he says to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. He persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. This was a part of that, the wearer's identity. And here's why, here's what I'm getting at. A lot of people were touching Jesus that day. <laughs> not just the woman, they were bumping into him. They were jostling. I imagine a few of them maybe grabbed out to, to touch him, maybe. In fact, the, that's why the disciples later would be so confused when he said, who touched me? And they were like, Jesus, a lot of people are touching you. You're in a crowd. This is worse than Friday night at, you know, old Spanish days fiesta. You're being touched by a lot of people. But this was not the same kind of touch. This was a touch of faith. For that woman in that moment was grabbing the part of Jesus 
clothing that represented his identity. It was as if she was saying, I know who you are. You can help me. Perhaps as a schooled, seasoned woman in the Jewish faith, she would have thought of passages like the last prophecy in the Hebrew Bible in Malachi that said, in those days the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his kanaf, in his wings. I don't know, but what we can know for sure is that she knew who he was. And she was after him. Do you know who he is? Do you know who he is in the same way? See, the significance of her touching a clean rabbi, as I would say it, not only is she ceremonially unclean, but she shouldn't be in a crowd. She's breaking the rules. You don't go in a crowd unless you're ceremonially clean. Not only that, but you certainly do not touch a rabbi if you're ceremonially unclean. Not to mention one of the most popular rabbis of the day. Super risky for her. She could have gotten in a lot of trouble, but she must have known something that was worth the trouble. This is good trouble. She was driven by something more than social protocol, and her faith moved her to take a scary step. If I can just get to this person, he'll change me. I think what we're seeing in the story is a woman who believed that Jesus was the Messiah, and she was willing to get to this guy at all costs. Apparently, she was right in her faith because she was healed immediately. What this passage tells me, what it should tell all of us, is that even though some of us are struggling, and if we're not now, we will later, and there will be points in our life where we have nowhere else to turn, get in the presence of the healer. Because one moment in the presence of Jesus Christ can begin healing a lifetime of pain. That's what I see in this story. I wanna keep going, I think there's some more here. It says in verse 30, Jesus perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, crowds are pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? I wanna pull out a couple things before we move on. One, the crowds are clueless to the presence of Jesus. Jesus will always attract a crowd, but it's few and far between women like this, people like this, who know more than just what the crowds are attracted to. They have that touch of faith. They know there's something about him that they desperately need. They're not just there to have their ears tickled by a sermon, to hear some great teachings and to watch some maneuvers with the demons being cast out. They want more than that from the sky. The crowds are clueless to the presence of Jesus, but she's not. And I think we can gather from this that not everyone around you is going to understand what God is doing in your life all the time, right? Each of us has a different journey, and God's doing something different in each of our journey. What he's doing in your life is gonna look different than what he's doing in the person next to you. And what he's doing in the person next to you and you is gonna be different than what he's doing in me. That's okay. The question you should be asking right now is what is he doing? What is he doing in your life? And are you open to that? 
Lastly, I think we see this little twist in the story that I love. Is that Jesus turns around after the healing has already passed. Which makes me think, the woman wants to get to Jesus at all costs, yes. But Jesus also wants to get to her at all costs. He wasn't done with the person, you notice. He, she already got healed. She could have walked away anonymously. In fact, I think she was trying to do that. Jesus turns around. He's like, who touched me? In other words, he wasn't done with her yet. Jesus is never done with the person. He wasn't done with her, and he's not done with you. Jesus isn't done with you either. I don't know what you came into this building, what you came into the uh, overflow, what you came into your living room, opened up that laptop for. I don't know what you came in with or where you are in the spiritual journey called life, but I know one thing, Jesus ain't done with you yet. In fact, some of you just need to say that. Turn to someone next to you and say, Jesus ain't done with you. Come on, say it like you mean it one more time. Jesus ain't done with you. He's just getting started. Some of you are about to give up on yourself, but Jesus ain't done with you. Some of you, your friends have given up on you, but Jesus ain't done with you. Society has labeled some of you, but Jesus isn't done with you. Your enemies have chastised you, harassed you, but Jesus ain't done with you. For some of you, it may feel like the world has passed you by, but Jesus ain't done with you. You may be done with religion, but Jesus ain't done with you. You may be done with sermons, but Jesus ain't done with you. You may even be done with Jesus, but Jesus ain't done with you. You may feel like you've been grinding it out, getting kicked down and beat down for 12 years, like nothing that you've been doing for the last decade has mattered and is a lost cause, but Jesus isn't done working in your life. I believe this morning he's getting to work in somebody's life this morning, and he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it at the day of Jesus Christ, amen? The healer can make you whole. Some of you have nowhere else to turn. Get in the presence of the healer. My last point, the healer can make you whole. Verse 32 through 34, this is the last passage, or the last verse in the passage. It says, he looked around to see who had done it, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling. This is a good kind of fear. It's like an excited fear, if I could put it that way, and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. I imagine she got down on her face and said, I heard reports about you. Here's my condition, and I knew that if I were to get to you and just grab the hem of your garment, you would heal me because I know you're the Messiah or whatever, something like that. And he said to her in verse 34, daughter, you imagine a woman who for 12 years in a deeply patriarchal society, a collectivist culture that was ostracized from basically everyone important in her life for a famous rabbi to look at her and say, daughter, <laughs> your faith has made you well. 
Go in peace and be healed of your scourge. Same word, disease. What I want to ask you today is if she was already healed, what's Jesus doing right here? Why does he put her on the spot? It says before this ever happened that the flow dried up and she felt in her body she was healed. She could have just skedaddled right there and she was about to. She was trying to. Jesus stops her and gets her to confess. Why, if she's already healed, does Jesus now put her on the spot in front of a crowd? I think it's because he's calling her to publicly bear witness, not to magic, not to superstition, but to her faith in him before a crowd. I think he's putting her on a spot for a reason, not like another rabbi might have to embarrass and shame her, but to affirm and confirm her. It's as if there's another type of healing that needs to happen in this woman's life, and the Messiah is the one to do it. He already healed her from her physical pain. Now he's about to heal her from her shame. Come on. She wanted a prescription for this condition that she had. The great physician is about to do heart surgery on this person. The healing she just got was momentary. She might be healed of that. She'll get something else later. The healing that Jesus always brings is comprehensive. Notice that this is wrapped up in the language that Jesus says. Your faith has made you well. This is a comprehensive word. You have been restored. You have been made whole. He then goes on to say, go in peace. Using an old Hebrew word that refers to the enshrouding presence of the Father who has blessed you. He's affirming her. And then he says, be healed of your disease. Using the same word we just talked about. Mastics, that scourge, that broad word for suffering. Notice, Jesus doesn't just stop with the bodily pain. He's now healing her from her shame. And he does all of this as the famous rabbi that he is in a crowd. Remember that had she done this to any other rabbi, she would have been embarrassed, humiliated, called out, punished, maybe even worse. But Jesus isn't like any other rabbi, is he? He does call her out. And in front of a crowd, affirms her and says, God's peace be upon you. One moment in the presence of Jesus can heal a lifetime of shame. And maybe you have some shame today. Maybe you're tired today. Maybe you're worn out. And if you feel like you have nowhere else to turn, I want to invite you to do what people have been doing for thousands of years, get in the presence of the healer who can make you whole. How can you start? Well, we can all just take a page from this woman. It says she fell down before Jesus and told him the whole truth. That might be a simple way for us to start, is just to get before Jesus today as we sing and as we respond, and to just talk to him. To just say what our, disease, our, our, our needs are, our desires. 
but not in the way that maybe we've been trained our whole life with proper prayer full of religious syntax and semantics that sound very uh, religious and professional. No. What we see here is real, raw, and vulnerable. You don't have to put together a prayer that everybody else likes when you get in the presence of Jesus. He already loves you. You could grunt your way through the most clumsy prayer of your life, but if it's real, Jesus will meet you right where you're at. And because wherever you're at, Jesus ain't done with you. He's just getting started. And a moment in the presence of Jesus can heal a lifetime of shame. I'm gonna ask Andrea to come back up here as we respond in singing and we can respond in a number of different ways. One, you can respond through prayer. And there's different ways of praying. You can stay right there in your seat and do what this woman did. Tell Jesus the whole truth. This is where I'm struggling. This is where I'm lonely. This is where I am isolated. This is where I am about to give up. This is where I'm weak. This is where I'm tired. This is where I have no answers. You can pour that stuff out before the Lord who cares. And in that way, grab a hold of his garment. For some of you, you need to get away from the noise, figuratively and literally speaking. Maybe for some of you, that means hitting some of these carpets literally like the woman did, bowing before Jesus alone in his presence, telling him the whole truth and maybe allowing him to tell the whole truth to you. For others, maybe you wanna pray, but you don't have the words to pray. We have prayer teams who can do that for you. James tells us to receive prayer. The prayer of a righteous person is effective. There'll be prayer teams by that orange dot, prayer teams outside, Lastly, we have communion as well. Notice that these are all physical and visceral responses to a spiritual truth. God wants us to move our bodies, to respond to what we know to be true with our bodies, knowing that sometimes when we move our bodies, when we raise our hands, when we bow before God, when we pray actual words, when we sing actual songs, when we make a move, when we grab the Messiah by his tassels, sometimes the body moves the heart and the mind. And maybe your heart and your mind is stuck right now. So I wanna invite you to move your body. For some of you as believers, I wanna invite you to take of the bread and the cup and Come before the Lord and remember his invitation that his body was broken for you and you can snap the bread in half as a symbol of that and that his blood was shed to wash away not only your sins but your shame too and you can drink that cup. Whatever it is, let's spend a few minutes in the presence of Jesus, the healer who can make you whole. And however this might look for you in the next few minutes, I wanna invite you to grab the hem of his robe.